It's Wednesday, October 31st, Halloween, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump is planning to sign an executive order that would remove the birthright citizenship for some U.S.-born babies. His order would be aimed at babies born to non-citizens and unauthorized immigrants, and almost certainly will set up a standoff with the courts and a constitutional debate over the 14th Amendment. Many legal scholars have said that it is not within the powers of the president to take this action. However, there are those that say it is possible. Steph Kite, immigration reporter for Axios, joins us to discuss the president's plans. Next, just in time for Halloween, how do you get rid of that haunted house? Selling your house may pose some interesting challenges if it is occupied by ghosts or if a death has occurred in there. According to a new survey, 49% of people said that under no circumstances would they buy a haunted house. Jeff Andrews, data reporter for Curb.com, joins us for some spooky stories about houses and how realtors sell these stigmatized houses. Finally, be careful out there when partying and trick-or-treating. Halloween can be a scary night to be a pedestrian. A new study has found that 43% more pedestrians die on Halloween night than on other autumn nights. Rachel Becker, reporter for The Verge, joins us for the concerning numbers. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Now they're saying I can do it just with an executive order. Now, how ridiculous. We're the only country in the world where a person comes in, has a baby, and the baby is essentially a citizen of the United States for 85 years with all of those benefits. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it has to end. Joining us now is Steph Kite, immigration reporter for Axios. You guys had the big story of the day in an interview that President Trump did with you guys. He said that he's targeting birthright citizenship, and he said that he might try to remove it with an executive order. What do we know about what the president is saying? So in an interview with my colleagues, Jonathan Swan and Jim Vandehei, President Trump told them that he is planning to sign an executive order that he's spoken with his counsel and he plans to end birthright citizenship. He didn't really give any further details beyond that or a timeline. He went on this sort of rant talking about how he wrongly said that we're the only country where people come here and they just have a baby and that baby becomes a citizen. Then there's chain migration and they bring in their parents and they become citizens. So we kind of, this is really targeting the process of children who are born in the U.S., particularly to undocumented immigrants, are automatically given citizenship because of the 14th Amendment. And Trump doesn't want them to then be able to also sponsor their parents for citizenship. And so while we don't know the details, we do know that that was the point that he talked a lot about in the conversation and that he is planning some kind of an executive order to end that. Right. And it's something that he's been talking about for quite a while. I know there's a lot of conservatives that also feel the same way. When he was on the campaign trail before he became president, he had made allusions to anchor babies and ending the birthright citizenship. One of the reasons why we love talking to you guys at Axios is you guys always have the inside scoop. You guys are very thorough in your reporting. And it even caught the president off guard, it seemed like. When your colleague asked him about this, he's like, I I thought I was the only person who knew this uh, because it was internal rumblings. These were things that were happening behind the scenes that they were working on. Exactly. Jonathan Swan had been chasing this story. He had got tips from a few of his sources close to the White House. And so in preparation for this interview, he decided, hey, I'm just going to go ahead and ask the president and see what he says. 
So I think you can even see in his face, we were kind of shocked that President Trump decided to just reveal, yes, he is actually planning an executive order. And that's something that they're planning to do and something he's talked to his legal counsel about and something that he believes he has the authority to do, which is something that is debatable. And the majority of legal and constitutional scholars would say he does not have that ability. Let's get into that part of it. The majority of scholars, legal scholars say that this cannot happen, but there are people that back the president and say that he could kind of make some changes to it. And even the president acknowledges that Congress would need to get involved. It's a long, lengthy process. It just seems like it sets it up for the Supreme Court to make a final judgment on this. I think it's almost certain that we would see very fast legal challenges if and when the president does actually sign this executive order. And as you said, you know, the majority say this is not within the president's power. This is in the Constitution. The Constitution is very clear in the 14th Amendment. And the only way to change this is through a constitutional amendment. But there are a few conservative scholars who over the years have argued that the one phrase in the 14th Amendment that talks about being subject to the jurisdiction thereof, of the U.S., of the state, can be read in two different ways. And some conservatives argue that that line was supposed to mean only people who had full political allegiance to the U.S., meaning that they are not undocumented immigrants, they are not temporary immigrants, but this kind of feeling that they belong to the U.S., Perhaps this was the understanding of that part of the 14th Amendment. And the Supreme Court has weighed in on this before, but it was applied to legal residents at the time. So uh, the thinking is that this has never been decided on immigrants not here legally. And that's what uh, Vice President Mike Pence even said, said the Mm -hmm. Supreme Court has never ruled on whether or not the language of the 14th Amendment applies specifically to people who are in the country illegally. And that's where the sticking point is. That's where a lot of people are saying that the president could just direct his agencies to fall in line with his interpretation of it Mm -hmm. and limit that to uh, people that are legal residents, green card holders and and citizens, which again, which just set up a Supreme Court fight and make them weigh in on it. And now that the president has conservative majority there, it throws everything in a flux. Nobody knows what will happen at that point. It's very true. Nobody knows. And of course, there is the most conservative Supreme Court that we've seen in a very long time. And so that could mean that they would rule in favor of the president if this did reach the Supreme Court and made it that far. But not all conservatives think that the president has this power. There's even a judge who was nominated by President Trump who has written about how he does not think that it is constitutional to read the 14th Amendment in any way that would not give citizenship to any baby born in, on U.S. soil. Paul Ryan has weighed in on this and he said mm-hmm. that it's almost hypocritical to think that President Trump would want to do this because they gave President Obama so much flack in using executive powers trying to rewrite immigration law. So just on that basis, he disagreed with it. And I know this is ratcheted up ahead of the midterms. There is this thing of birth tourism that has happened. I live in California and I remember very specifically just a couple years ago, one of the neighboring cities over here, FBI and police raided a uh, birth hotel where uh, I think it was a lot of Chinese immigrants were hosting a lot of women so they can have their babies and then leave. So it's not that this is not something that is happening. From 2014, the Pew Research Center found that about 275,000 babies were born to such mm-hmm. parents in 2014. It was just 7% of the 4 million births in the U.S. that year. 
So it's a small number, but it is something that happens. But this is something that the president has made a centerpiece of his immigration policy from the very beginning, from when he was running for president. The full interview can be seen this Sunday, November 4th. It's called Axios on HBO. Is there anything else you want to tell us about that? I myself am excited to see the final product. I have yet to see all of the episodes all the way through. But yeah, in partnership with HBO, it's going to debut this Sunday at 6.30. And I'm looking forward to see it. There will be four episodes. So this Sunday will be the first one. And then every Sunday after that. So everyone should watch. I'll be watching along with you. (laughs) Excellent. Steph Kite, immigration reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. They woke up, they go to the bathroom and look in, and Cindy says that the bathtub was filled four inches high with individually lit matches. Now, that's not somebody <laughs> threw a bunch of matches in the bathtub right. and lit it on fire. Someone had lit individual matches and put them in the bathtub until it was four inches high. Joining us now is Jeff Andrews, data reporter for Curb.com. Obviously, it's Halloween. I, I've, we've been talking about little Halloween stories all month long on the podcast. I saw your article. I loved it right away. Haunted houses present a very real challenge for realtors. When the season comes around, I get with my friends. We automatically start telling ghost stories, things that have happened to us in our own homes growing up as kids or when you're just having that spooky night in your apartment all alone. This is the thing that I always thought of. Was like, What happens when you eventually move and you have to sell that house and maybe you're just totally convinced that there are ghosts or weird things happening in your house. Your article spoke to that immediately. There is the problem for people trying to sell houses. What do we know about that? I guess it poses a problem depending on what the beliefs of the person who's looking to buy it is. Realtor.com did a survey this year and they found that 49% of respondents would not buy a haunted house under any circumstances. But then another 18% said it would have no bearing on their decision at all. And then the rest of them sort of expected some sort of concession, a price cut or a larger kitchen. That's the one that I loved right there. Give me a larger kitchen and maybe we can make a deal with it. I'll take the ghost if you put a new oven in. Right, exactly. I always had the question, you know, do people have to disclose if something is going on? Like, let's say there was a death in the house, things like that. Something that would lead people to feel spookiness in a house. If there's a material defect with the house, say a leaky roof or something wrong with the foundation, the seller is required to disclose that by law. But when we're talking about stigmatized homes, which is a perception about the house that doesn't necessarily have any material effect on it, but it can just kind of freak you out. So if it's haunted or if there was a death in the house or a suicide in the house, or as I found with my realtor in Salem, Massachusetts, if there's a lot of devil worshiping going in. (laughs) This gets a little murkier and it kind of varies from state to state. In California, if there's been a murder or a suicide in the house in the last three years, the seller has to disclose that up front. In other states like Massachusetts, if the buyer asks this question, then the seller has to disclose it, but they don't necessarily have to present that up front. So the realtors I talked to, what they said was, if you're a buyer and this kind of stuff freaks you out, you should get familiar with what the disclosure laws are for your state, and then you can ask the questions up front. In most cases, the seller will have to tell you. 
So let's get into some of the spooky stories that you had in your article. You said you did speak to a realtor in Salem, Massachusetts. It turned out that there was some devil worshippers in there. I would not want to buy that house. And what happened in that case? My realtor, Dana Bull, she's in Salem, Massachusetts. And as you can imagine, the history of the town with the Salem witch trials, it attracts its fair share of colorful characters. She comes across this stuff more often than she would if she was in another town. She was in one house where she went in and there was a bunch of satanic decor in it, but they couldn't really find anything materially wrong with the house. But then on the final inspection, she and the inspector stumbled over a hidden room behind a drape and basically decided that they were sacrificing animals in this (laughs) hidden room as part of some sort of satanic ritual. She did not end up selling that house, no. You also Um, talked about a a realtor in California. Her name was Cindy Hagley, who does a lot of consultations with people on whether to disclose these kind of things. She goes into houses and gets the feeling like, is there something paranormal going on here? And she shared a story that was super creepy when she was a child where she was woken up in the middle of the night and a voice said, you can't get in here right now. It just gets weirder from there. She's a little kid, seven years old, I believe, with her brother, and they hear this voice in the bathroom saying, you can't get in here right now. They woke up, they go to the bathroom and look in, and Cindy says that the bathtub was filled four inches high with individually lit matches. Now, that's not somebody (laughs) threw a bunch of matches in the bathtub and lit it on fire. Someone had lit individual matches and put them in the bathtub until it was four inches high. So they're freaked out and their father comes up to the bathroom and asks, which one of you kids did this? And she was like, well, neither of us did this. It would have taken days for us to sit here and light all these matches individually to fill the bathtub with four inches. Cindy is obviously a true believer. Right. And the paranormal, and she does do consulting around the country. She said about three or four times a year, she has a little consulting firm that she calls Past Life Homes. She goes to the home, decides if there's anything paranormal happening, and then with the seller works to decide when they're going to disclose it. And she said she believes in over-disclosing, so even if... It's a questionable case. She wants to get it out front so the seller can't come back and charge the buyer with hiding something. I live right across the street from a cemetery, actually. And I've in my many years of living there, I've never experienced anything spooky in my own apartment. But I just love this story because it's rooted in some very real challenges that people have in selling houses that, you know, could be deemed haunted. And it just gets you primed for telling spooky stories and sharing experiences like that. So Jeff Andrews, data reporter for Curb.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Forty-three percent more people die from being hit by a car. It tracked deaths on Halloween compared to deaths on two other nights. And it looked over since 1975, how many pedestrians die on Halloween from being hit by a car versus those other nights. Joining us now is Rachel Becker, reporter for The Verge. There's a new study out that says that Halloween is a very scary night out to be a pedestrian. Now, we're not trying to be fear mongers or anything. It's really more of a just be really careful 
out there kind of story. But they said that about 43% more people die on Halloween than any other random fall night. What do we know about this new study? Yeah, so it's specifically 43% more people die from being hit by a car. So we're talking about pedestrians here. And it was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics. It tracked deaths on Halloween compared to deaths on two other nights, you know, one week before, one a week after. And it looked over since 1975, how many pedestrians die on Halloween from being hit by a car versus those other nights. I mean, obviously it makes sense. It's darker. Kids are running around, darting across the street because they want to get to the house with the full-size candy bars and things like that. Or, you know, people are out partying and they're maybe getting in the car and driving drunk, things like that. It, It makes sense that it could be a more dangerous night. There's just a lot more activity happening on that night. And as I said, in the darkness, you said they looked at 42 years of traffic data and they said that they found a total of 608 pedestrians had died on these Halloween nights uh, more than usual. I think about 55 of those were kids between the ages of four to eight, which is 10 times more kids who died from getting hit by a car on Halloween compared to other nights in the fall. And this, they looked at uh, the peak times, uh, it's like five o'clock to midnight or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were specifically looking at the, the 5 p.m. to midnight window and the, the peak time for kids was around 6 p.m. So this is leading a lot of people to say, you know, it just proves that the streets are not safe. I know they made recommendations. Obviously, let's not ban trick-or-treating or anything that crazy, but it should serve as a, uh, a warning to parents and people maybe put reflectors on kids' costumes, get out there with flashlights. Exactly. Basically, you know, reflective costumes, light up costumes. Something really interesting that the, the lead researcher, uh, John Staples, said to me was that Halloween is one night a year, but pedestrian fatalities occur year round. And so this is really, rather than saying stay inside on Halloween, this is really sort of a call to action about the danger that pedestrians face all the time on the roads because of poor infrastructure, not enough crosswalks, not enough well-lit crosswalk, not enough sidewalks. And so these are kind of shortcomings that need to be addressed to keep people safe year round. And it actually started shining a light on people who drive SUVs. So if you drive an SUV, you should be paying attention to this because it said most of these crashes were happening with uh, people driving SUVs and the line of sight, the vision was a a major player in that. That was a separate study by the uh, Insurance Institute for Highway Safety that it it does provide some really interesting context here, which is why I included it. But in that previous study, basically, it showed that although pedestrian deaths overall have been decreasing since 1975, there was a kind of alarming increase starting in 2009. A lot of those crashes occurred in the dark and the researchers at the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety found that SUVs are playing this kind of growing role in these fatal car accidents. And so there are more SUVs on the road. So the probability of a fatal crash goes up, but also they're higher off the ground. So they might hit a vulnerable part of a pedestrian like the header chest. It's a fun time. Halloween is, uh, but it is also a time to be careful and watch out for yourself. Parents taking your kids out. You got to be careful as a pedestrian. You got to be very careful as a driver. Rachel Becker, reporter for The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for inviting me. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno. 
and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.